0: Hi everybody, this is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors. Biotics Research, for over 40 years, the foundations of Biotics Research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at BioticsResearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. For the past two decades, TA Sciences has been dedicated to exclusively creating research-based clinically tested wellness products that help address telomere shortening through the science of telomerase activation. As you know, anti-aging has been a huge focus of my research and I am thrilled to have TA Sciences as a sponsor of New Frontiers. Learn about their products, their research, their outlook on anti-aging at tasciences.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and, of course, today is no exception. I am so happy to be turning the microphone over to Dr. Austin Perlmutter today. He is going to be conducting the interview. Background on Austin. He's a board certified internal medicine doctor. He's a New York Times bestselling author, educator, consultant, and host of his own badass podcast, Get the Stuck Out. He's also co-producer of Alzheimer's, the science of prevention docuseries. So Austin, take it away. I hope everybody enjoys it. And I'd love to hear from you uh, and leave an iTunes review if you are so inclined. Thanks.
1: Well, hello everybody. This is Dr. Austin Perlmutter. I am honored to get to guest host this podcast today and I'm doubly excited because my guest today is no other than Dr. Anthony Bossis and he is a remarkable individual that I've had the opportunity to hear lecture multiple times and had a chance to speak with after some recent conferences. He's a clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at NYU and the NYU Center for Psychedelic Medicine. His work is some of the seminal work looking at specifically psilocybin and how psilocybin influenced emotional distress and changed existential well being scores after a single dose of psilocybin in people with cancer. He is a supervisor of psychotherapy at the Bellevue Hospital, and he's a co founder and former co director of the Bellevue Hospital Palliative Care Service. So for many reasons, I am thrilled to be welcoming Dr. Bosses to the new Frontiers in Functional Medicine podcast. So Dr. Bosses, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Austin, So great to be here. Great to be here. Thank you.
1: Fantastic. Well, I have so many questions for you, and I think you are an amazing person to be having this conversation with, because obviously we're all interested in, in learning about opportunities to improve mental health these days. The mental health issues seem only to have worsened in the context of the pandemic. And many people, myself included, have been very interested in how psychedelics might play a role in mental health. So I'd love to just start with hearing a bit about how you came to be interested in the concepts of psychedelics and end-of-life care and their intersection.
2: Yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you for, uh, I think, the greatest introduction here to the topic is unfortunately the the pandemic and uh, it reminds us both to address it for a moment and how that dovetails so well with this conversation. I mean, this pandemic has just been just years of unspeakable suffering, Um, but but what it has done, and I hope this isn't lost on all of us, um, is pull the curtain back on what's always been there, which of course is, this is impermanent, death and suffering are always right there with us. Um, And how do we cope and navigate suffering. And uh, clearly, this pandemic has you know, reminded us of this. It's been like one global existential Dharma lesson or something for all of us. And, and hopefully, there are lessons being learned. Um, and it does dovetail well with today's topic that I know we're going to touch on, which is how do we help mitigate the anguish and the suffering that can accompany the end of life, the end of each individual life. Uh, and this pandemic has certainly kind of amplified that in this globally uh, existential way. Um, My own background, uh, I've had a fascination with these medicines uh, going back really about 40 years to my early 20s, uh, given my age away there. Um, (laughs) And as a kid, like so many of us, I just was uh, plagued a bit by existential distress. And we all wondered as kids, what happens after we die? And that clearly... I look back led led to an interest in comparative religion and um i came across in my early 20s maybe a little before the whole literature on mystical experience through huxley and and of course like so many of us back then alan watts reading these incredible uh writings of so many people um they really s- spoke to my own personal longing for for understanding what, what is death and what happens to consciousness and and i you know, came across all this first psychedelic wave of research that was really done in the 1950s and 60s. And these are the days uh, before internet for the uh, listeners <laughs> when we used to go to uh, public libraries and look at microfiche and look at books. And, but the body of literature was there. Um, and it's an incredible you know body of literature, that first wave of research where they used LSD and a little bit of psilocybin, mostly LSD, and will define these medicines in a little bit, I know, uh, to alleviate end-of-life suffering in cancer patients, um, and also to help explore, you know, what is spirituality, what is consciousness, which we don't know. And that just gripped me. Um, and ever since, I, I've been fascinated by mystical experience, you know, comparative religion, but and psychedelics, and always hoped one day I would do this. And um, sometimes in life, things come out the way you might want and dream, and here I am, uh, many years later, uh, grateful to be participating in this uh, reemergence of psychedelic research in America.
1: That's an amazing answer. Uh, I just, so many of the things that you've described resonate for me in my personal exploration of these topics. Um, but I would like to come back to something that I feel is, is often missed in the conversation, because as many listeners know, there's been an explosion in interest uh, around the topic of psychedelics, uh, both in the Kind of consumer space as well as in the uh, academic space, and so looking at Google trends or looking at PubMed trends, there's just much more going on with relation to these molecules. But you mentioned that first wave of psychedelic study, and I think it's an area that many people don't know is that tons of research was done in those early decades after, I guess, after the initial synthesis of LSD, looking at the effect of these molecules on a variety of different outcomes, and then there was a pretty substantial dip in the subsequent decades, um, which relates in part to the government regulation of the access to these molecules, both in the research and the non-research settings. But um, any thoughts on, you know, the the value looking back at of all that initial research as it pertains to uh, do we think that that research is it was conducted in a way that we can uh, draw conclusions from it? Does it have to be redone in a way that can be uh, looked at through the rigor of current trial standards?
2: It's a great question, and um, I appreciate you starting off with that because there isn't a researcher today uh, who doesn't really admire and respect. Uh, and I think most of us would would, would should admit, um, we stand upon the shoulders of these great pioneers from over half a century ago. Uh, so yeah, just for a few minutes, it's a great way to start. And, and two quick caveats, one, one is the experience itself that we're gonna talk about today, this mystical experience that we call it, we still call it that even within the scientific realm is not unique to psychedelics. I I believe and you know, we're wired for meaning. Humans are wired for these transcendent experiences and they're found at the mystical core of the great religions and traditions and been written about for for millennia. Uh, Pew studies show everyday people have glimpses of these transcendent peak states. The great Aldous Huxley, who was a great supporter of psychedelic work and had it himself and it changed his life, um, spoke often about this mystic core of, of human experience and how in those days LSD uh, could generate that experience as well as similar to the kinds that occurred naturally throughout the ages so that research era is just a very rich period of time and I I remained uh, fascinated by it um, Albert Hoffman invented discovered accidentally LSD in 1938 and in 1943 stumbled across a uh, having the experience accidentally initially, then intentionally. uh, And it was quickly looked into as a scientific tool to understand consciousness. Uh, Quickly, LSD was used in the first wave of research for two primary clinical indications. One was for alcoholism, and many listeners may not know, uh, Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, had had an LSD experience a number of times. And through that spiritual you know powerful epiphany he had um, that led him to the insight that the spiritual realm could serve as an ablation to want to have alcohol to try to transcend this uh, this body we live in and um and the other arm was was for cancer distress people like stan groff bill richards uh, the great walter panky who died very young uh, tragically back then um, began to look at how one lsd experience and more importantly, this generated peak or mystical experience that we'll define clearly today could reduce dramatically reduce the suffering in in cancer patients. Uh, And it did that in a very different way than other medications do. Most medications people take and took back then, you know, work as you take the medication every day. You take it every day to achieve a desired effect and typically medicines quiet down unpleasant symptoms in terms of antidepressants or anxiolytics and anxiety agents. This medicine provided this incredible transcendent altered state of consciousness and the insights cultivated within that experience dramatically changed their their perspectives on life, death, consciousness, and we saw these great results. That went on for a number of years into the mid 70s. And as you, uh, you know, implied or or said, in 1970, President Nixon, there was a, the Substance Abuse Act was was signed and uh, these medicines that were at one time legal for the culture itself, uh, became out of the reach of the public and incredibly out of the reach of researchers. And this promising paradigm of research came to a close in the mid seventies and 30 years went by or so before this current re-emerging phase we find ourselves in. And, and a quick historical note that's fascinating. Not only was the research interesting, but they were culturally legal. So people like Harry Grant, you know, the biggest star of his time, and others, were having LSD or psychedelics in their psychoanalytic experiences, in their psychotherapy, uh, to facilitate growth and, and and transformative experiences. So it's it's incredible that there was such a, a cutting edge then. And then it came to a grinding halt, and we lost really decades of, of promising understanding about these medicines. So, and here we are now. Um, so, to go back to your question, really picking up where they left off the study is the same. We'll talk about the trials today, how we do this. We do it in the same way they described preparation, medication session, integration. Uh, the way it's done is the same. Um, and so, we really, as uh, so we are, uh, Hats off to the pioneers who really began this incredible treatment model.
1: Uh, it's an amazing answer. Uh, I'm glad we went there because I think that the past is, is so important in understanding the present as it relates to why psychedelics uh, are perhaps viewed in the way that many see them, which is as drugs of only abuse and as hallucinogens with no actual benefit to human health, which kind of designates the Schedule One. Um, one of the things I'm hoping we get into a bit here, uh, is, is thinking about the difference between the, uh, the experience itself, or maybe not the difference, but just this idea that there's more to it than the experience itself. That is the, the drug experience, uh, which is kind of the altered state of consciousness induced by a chemical signal within the brain and the fact that there are lasting effects. And I think Probably you and the group you've worked with are one of the uh, premier study groups in the world as far as showing duration of some of these effects. And so hopefully we can talk specifically about your um, your recent publication in 2020, looking at some of the results of your 2016 trial. But I guess uh, before we get there, I would love to see your take on, you know, well, here we start out 1950s or so with so much work being done. I mean, from some of the papers I've read, there were over a thousand studies. There were over 40,000 participants in these studies, just a lot of work that was done. And then again, a fall off. Um, and I think it's, it's clear or objective to say that in that uh, period, it's not like human mental health has, has improved all that dramatically. Uh, it's something I, I talk about a lot is, despite the fact that we've had so much progress and in, in so many aspects of, of human civilization, I guess, and human society innovation, Uh, It's not like we've seen the prevalence of mental health conditions like anxiety, PTSD, depression, end-of-life distress really drop off. And in in many studies, it would actually be the opposite. Again, I think pretty clear to see that it is increasing at least rates of anxiety and depressive type symptoms, general stress as a result of the pandemic. So I'm wondering if you feel like humans have kind of lost touch a bit with some of that depth that was provided. um, or by psychedelics, but just by the types of relationships, connections, conversations that might've been more prevalent prior to the modern technological age. And Mm -hmm. whether, I know this wasn't something that we planned to talk about, but whether the kind of short-term interactions or instant gratification interactions that many of us participate in through social media, through uh, scrolling through content has, has changed our
2: ability to tap into that. Boy, what a great <laughs> question! Um, that, that's kind of the topic for the for the our times, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's a very big conversation. We could sit here all day and, and tr- try to pick that apart. What is a zeitgeist we find ourselves in! Not only within this pandemic, but modern life, and of, of course, uh, since um, the birth of the internet and this this way we live today. Um, I I think it has me. I think it has a connection, and I, I think that's what you're 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 getting at. Um, you know, p- part of the research I, we think part of the efficacy of these of these experiences is the meaning, is the personal sense of meaning that's cultivated. Um, uh, senses of um, I mean, people speak very often about the, the feelings of love towards self, towards others, um, uh, meaning about their personal life. Why am I here? What is life? What happens after death? Uh, what do I do here in the face of suffering? Uh, you know, big questions, particularly for those who are in the cancer trial and who are who are at the end of life. Uh, and it, it does seem, also that this current zeitgeist, uh, with these quick digital interactions and the loss of maybe conversation, and, and even religion has has changed. Right? Um, religion initially were, were these. Um, and it means to, to find to link back to, to bind back to, to, to a source, and they were built around communities and conversation, meaning-making rituals. And it does seem that's kind of receded a bit in, in this current time. And there's no shortage of suffering going on. We all know the, the data on, on anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and, and suicide is up tragically. And and so Um, It's it's a very difficult time, and it's interesting that these medicines come back because there's some talk, and and we'll address this today as well. We want to keep things in perspective.
0: Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. Hi, everybody. I am thrilled to be introducing you to Pendulum Therapeutics, the first and only brand to offer Acromantia Mucinophilia, a keystone strain for gut health in a daily probiotic. Acromantia is a unique probiotic strain found in your GI tract that helps with gut lining, and it's vital for gut health. Gut microbiomes change due to genetics, disease, epigenetics, lifestyle, diet, and we might lose our acromancia. It's not available in any foods. Pendulum manufactures and packages this patented strain into a simple probiotic capsule taken once a day with a meal. And for New Frontiers listeners, use code KF20 to subscribe and save 20% on your first month of Pendulum Acromancia, Get it at PendulumLife.com. That's PendulumLife.com. Now, well, let's get back to this month's episode.
2: Uh, there's a, there's, an, there's a, uh, an impulse to over maybe a promise, um, but there is talk that these medicines and more importantly, these experiences they generate may revolutionize how we treat suffering. Uh, Again, Zoloft, Prozac you take every day to quiet down a symptom. These experiences literally bring the patient into the suffering through this three to four hour, five hour experience in this dramatically altered state into the suffering itself and and ideally transform it or understand it at least in a better way. So I, I think in many ways what these medicines do, or the experiences do, is to redefine and recalibrate our relationship to suffering hmm. because suffering is it's above my pay grade but a suffering <laughs> does appear to be the design of human experience there is suffering in life and there's no way around that and um these the, these experiences and what the participants tell us is that it changes that relationship to suffering and that through that suffering comes and that's what the part people do hear about in the press these incredible transcendent joyful loving insights into what this life might be about, but it takes first um, moving through some some very challenging experiences.
1: This really is powerful stuff. Uh, just to, I guess, show my my cards here. I think we're a, a generation distracting ourselves from looking at the important stuff. And for better or worse, I would argue for worse, the tools for distraction have become so good that it is it's really difficult to stand in anything or to want to stay in anything uncomfortable um, I know in my medical training and, and palliative care and otherwise, it was pretty clear that people had disconnected themselves from the experience of, of death and didn't want to think about it until it was absolutely unavoidable. And we'd have families coming into the ICU with one of their loved ones at the end, and they just have no kind of uh, infrastructure as to how to process it. And we'd have maybe the chaplain came in, somebody else, and there would be a, a bit of a connection there, but as you've mentioned, people have lost connection with religion, and I'm not arguing that's good or bad, but the the rituals and the uh, experience of death and, and what that represents has just been pushed to the fringe where everything is centered on the moment. And uh, it does seem like there there is a an intrinsic depth to talking about those types of things, but it is also intrinsically uncomfortable because it is the opposite of everything we've been hoping to, uh, to optimize in the modern day. Um, so I, I just think, especially now it, it is something we're being exposed to with a lot of death and dying as a reflection of COVID. And we don't have the tools to, to manage that. So beyond, I think even the psychedelic work, your work with helping people make meaning about that end of life. And I know you've worked in palliative care. Uh, it seems so important. So I, I would like to, I guess, make sure we have time to uh, to adequately cover your work. I think that this is what makes this conversation one of the things that makes this conversation with you uh, so exciting for me is that you've actually done this research where you've shown um, some of the most remarkable effects from psychedelics used in a very specific context. And so I'd love to to start around the 2016 publication and then transition to some of the work you published in 2020 showing the long lasting effects of some of the initial work.
2: That's great, thank you, yeah. Um, and to dovetail w- with what you just said uh, regarding death and dying, fortunately there, there is some improvement. I have to say you know, palliative care and hospice movements have really helped in- increase the awareness of the conversation in our culture. I mean, you know, every year we see New York Times bestsellers around death and dying, and we see end-of-life doulas and death over dinner, and so we're we're seeing the conversation a little better. Uh, You know, you think of Ernest Becker's "The Denial of Death." It really was the final taboo. There, there is it it is advancing. Um, However, we're we're still far from uh, it being fully integrated into life. And you know, people often ask, "Well, isn't it depressing to to think about death all the time?" and and as you know, paradoxically, it's not. Uh, I think to accompany us that that's always there and this life does have an end, actually in its best, liberates one to live more fully uh, versus this kind of you know, pushing it off to the end, which we don't know when it's going to come. Uh, George Harrison <laughs> um, you know, famously said on his, you know, as he was approaching death um, to, to his wife that you can't wait to the end to prepare for this you know, it's it's a lifelong journey to, to prepare for the end, and the end of life is part of life. So, uh, you know, hats off to the palliative care movement that's really done so much good work and and increasingly to help uh, educate the public. Yeah, the, this the, our study um, at, at NYU and at Johns Hopkins were published together in 2016, uh, and again, stands upon the um, the shoulders of the great pioneers of the 1960s who published some papers uh, that one LSD-generated experience uh, could dramatically reduce depression, anxiety, and, and just the attitude about death. And the important thing that came out, come out of their research that we really continue today, and uh, um, is an important part of our conversation, is it seems to, and about two-thirds of the people, maybe a little more, to generate what we call a mystical experience. Abraham Maslow called it a peak experience. So there's many names, there's no one name and it's not one thing per se, but you know, Carl Jung called it, you know, the numinosity, Rudolf Otto and um, and we actually define that. There's a, there's a clinical measure, a research measure that began, was developed back in the 1960s that we still use uh, in, in modern research and there's only a, a few brief features. One is that In this experience, the the person of the subjective experience that all things are connected, unity, literally all people and things are connected. It's one unfolding uh, essence. Um, The other uh, feature is the noetic quality, uh, a term coined by the great William James, that as if one is encountering ultimate reality. Also, I've never heard rarely ever heard in all the, the sessions i have guided a person come out of it and say, at the end of the day when they're back in ordinary consciousness. Oh, that was a temporary drug effect and that's all it was. It's more like that was ultimate reality or that was more real than this or that was part of whatever this all is, and that's remarkable to hear. Um, a sense of sacredness is often uh, within the experience, uh, a deeply felt positive moods, ineffability, impossible to describe, which of course we read about in, in all the great mystics as well. And what I think one of the most important features is this, what we call transcendence, uh, transcendence of time-space as we know it, which I know sounds very uh, out there for a listener, but people report and all these research trials going back half a century and in naturally occurring experiences, transcending this body that we have, time and space as we know it, as if pulling the lens back on experience and seeing ourselves in a much larger panoramic field. And that really recalibrates how we, our perspectives on life, death, what is the body, what is consciousness, which we don't know, what is death. And for the person who is dying, and whose body will soon stop working. You know, As we're approaching death, there's the, there's the knowledge, this body will soon stop functioning. And if we associate who we are with the body, then I stop. Uh, and maybe that's the case. But what many people have insights is that there's something more endure, enduring about who I am, whatever soul or spirit or self is, that consciousness you know, might continue in some ways, something much more mysterious and grand. And that insight is a gift for people who are approaching the end of life. So picking up with the first wave of research, we did a trial at NYU and the Hopkins um, looking at one dose of psilocybin, a high dose, a moderate to high dose to generate this powerful experience in people with cancer, many with very advanced cancers. And um, we published in 2016, as you mentioned, and the results were, were quite remarkable to us and, and those who uh, are aware of this, it really it generated a rapid, uh, next day, and sustained decrease in depression, which is hard to treat, anxiety, hopelessness. Um, it improved spiritual well being, existential well being, quality of life. Up to 90% of the participants reported improvement in quality of life. And the one thing it treated, which is interesting, is something we call demoralization. Which is becoming a very um, important uh, construct or, or experience in palliative care. It's a sense of meaninglessness, existential distress, hopelessness, and it's hard to treat with medication like you would with depression. It doesn't, it doesn't overlap with major depression in the same way. It's very unique. Um, and this, um, this changed that. It reduced the demoralized state. And we're going to have a new trial of this year looking at demoralization as the primary variable, actually, in a psilocybin uh, multi site trial. So that was um, really uh, fortunate for these patients uh, and these findings, and uh, they were published together, and they, and, this, and, the exper- and the features lasted, the, the relief lasted to the end of the trial, a nine-month marker, up to 80% continued to report less depression, less anxiety, and a dramatic reduction, not, not minor, but a very dramatic drop and you mentioned the 2020 trial uh, paper. So the surviving members, we, we contacted uh, 3.2 and f- four and a half years later and readministered these measures. Uh, many had since passed away, but the, for those who were living, they continued to report these, these effects, these reduced experience of depression, anxiety, demoralization, which again is really interesting. So a lot of questions here. We wanna do larger scale studies, more people, we're still in clinical trials. People often write and say, how do I have get this medicine? I want to be clear that we're still in FDA-approved clinical trials. The psilocybin is not available yet legally in America. Um, but we hope within the five years or so, with more trials and more uh, a continuation of these findings, that it will be rescheduled, meaning available prescription for those at the end of life. Um, and then and, and quickly, qualitatively, what was remarkable, more remarkable than talking about data and reduction in symptoms was their experience, Austin, talking about that even if this is the only life, the, the appreciation for every minute they had, we saw a greater sense of equanimity. We heard a lot about love, and it's always, you know, curious to hear scientists talk about love, but they spoke about love and forgiveness towards themselves, for others, of a greater you know, love that maybe the uh, energy of uh, or the force of whatever this all is. I um, like the Greek word agapi. And so you have, you know, scientists and clinical researchers talking this language, um, uh, but this is what they were telling us. And so that's where we stand with those papers. We're looking forward to the next series of trials. And hopefully uh, in, in a few years, this will be available on a larger scale. We don't die well in America. We're getting better at it, but there, there's, as you know so well in your work, there's improvement in, you know, chemotherapies and in pain management, but boy oh boy, we really have a hard time kind of um, addressing the emotional and existential distress that can often accompany us as we, uh, as this fleeting life uh, winds down.
1: I mean, that was just, it's incredible to hear. I mean, these are, what, it brings to mind for me is a number of things, but there are so many of us who are, are seeking to practice evidence-based medicine, where we're looking at all of these papers, we're reviewing the sample sizes, we're looking for sources of bias, and then we're you know intervening and saying, oh, well, the ACE inhibitor is best for somebody with this diabetic complication based on these data points. And all of this, to me, collapses at some point to what are the outputs or what are the outcomes we really care about? And it just it strikes me that hearing those outcomes that you just described, those are the ones that that actually matter, and everything else is a surrogate. So mm-hmm. we get people's blood pressure down, we work on their their hearts, um, we bring people's blood sugar down. Sure, all of that is important, but kind of I think we can agree that what really matters is what you've described, and so it's. It's certainly looking at things like objective markers of quality of life, but it's also just asking people about it and hearing from people that this was one of the most meaningful experiences they have had, that they felt connected to the whole. Um, I guess at some point it comes down to personal philosophy, but it just seems really uh, really important to, to spend extra time thinking about studies, interventions that get us to those outcomes. And I, and I would love to just You know, to to try to put this into context, um, do you know of any other interventional trials that show these types of results as it relates to mental health, as far as the timeline, as far as the uh, rates of side effects?
2: Yeah, no, we don't. I mean, this is again one day. The very next day, these these symptoms of depression and anxiety drop off and and are sustained. we we don't. It really is a paradigm shift in, in medicine and and you know you mentioned the value the 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 the, the how they report the experiences around sixty seven percent somewhere in the high sixty percent range of people report this experience as being the single most or top five most meaningful and or spiritual experience of their lifetime. And you think about that. So that includes getting married, having children, all the things that life. Delivers all the good things and all the, all the tough things, death of loved ones, but those experiences are kind of just imprinted in, in our consciousness. And this experience is among those. Mm-hmm. And you know, here's where we get a bit, you know, philosophical, and may, maybe leave, um, you know, change gears a bit. But what I'm often left asking: Why would that be? Why are we wired for meaning? What's the function? Why are humans wired for these experiences? These are not unique just to to this medicine. They've, they've occurred naturally throughout history. They seem to form the foundations of the great wisdom traditions. Uh, a recent Pew study showed 49% of Americans report having some glimpse of a, a religious type experience. Um, although it doesn't get talked about a lot. It isn't part of our you know, cultural lexicon in a way, right? Um, astronauts have these. You know, they called, It's called the overview effect. I invite the, the listener to Google overview effect. And mm-hmm. um, astronauts, when they see the... You know, the the pale blue dot, as Carl Sagan affectionately called our home Earth, you know, floating there in this black abyss, um, they're catapulted into these experiences. The astronaut Edgar Mitchell in 1971, coming back from the moon on an Apollo mission, had a naturally occurring mystical experience in the spaceship, looking out the window at at all of that, um, and came back and spoke about it and dedicated his life, the rest of his life, uh, to understanding these transpersonal experiences. So, it leaves us with the question, why? Why are we worried for meaning? Um, and isn't that something? And these medicines can generate that experience. They also generate other experiences too, not just this one, but autobiographical kind of psychodynamically oriented experiences. They can revisit earlier traumas, unresolved relationships. They could also be very difficult, and I want to make sure we get that in the encounter with the self. To to maybe to, 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 to paraphrase Jung. Um, uh, particularly if you're approaching death, can be profoundly difficult. And there are tough stretches in his experiences.
0: Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. I wrote my upcoming book, Younger You, Reduce Your Bio Age and Live Longer Better, because our research strongly suggests that we don't have to accept the inevitability of disease and unwellness as we age. And perhaps we don't have to accept aging as we age. Take that one in. And further, we achieved this biological age reversal without expensive and risky hormones, injections or hacks, but with a simple, smartly designed diet and lifestyle program. When we saw our study participants reverse their bio age by over three years as compared to our control group, it was clear to me, even as we move forward with more research, that you needed access to our program now. You can do this in two ways. Our 3YY digital program encompasses what we did in our study in an actionable, all-encompassing doable structure, and my book, which covers our study, my story, the behind-the-seeds adventures, and a dive into the fascinating world of modifying genetic expression, plus loads of recipes and bio-age assessments and an appendix extraordinaire. He see youngeryouprogram.com for details on how to access both. Now let's get back to this month's episode.
2: This is why we have this treatment model that, again, was developed in the 1960s. Weeks of preparation, getting to know the person, preparing them for how to navigate this experience, getting to trust, have a sense of trust and rapport with the with the two therapists who are present the entire time. But uh, the day of the session, lying on a couch with ear headphones and ear and eye shades to, to block out the distractibility and attention to the, you know, surrounding environment, and to go inward into the unfolding changes in consciousness, and it lasts a few hours, Um, the peak part of the experience could last three or four hours, and they come back into ordinary consciousness, then there's weeks of addressing it and therapeutically integrating the experience. So it isn't a one off which is in cultural terms, people would call the bad trip. It's not a great term, Um, but it's the preparation, it's the screening carefully, it's the consent, it's the support, it's trained guides there. They're really embedded with this, you know, this model that has been shown to be very effective and not have serious adverse effects. Uh, But again, Austin, why would that be? Why is consciousness, you know, why does it take us in that direction? And, And people often ask why is, these studies so ideal for psychedelics and I think the answer is psychedelic experience, not just for the dying patient, but for so many people who have it, even other, other indications, healthier people, it seems to draw them into suffering and often the question of death. Mm. People actually have what we call a death, rebirth experience and consciousness in these trials kind of remarkable to talk about, but why would I do that? um, and that's, you know, it's a question that, you know, above uh, my pay grade and I guess any of ours, <laughs> but it just behooves us to really, huh, isn't that interesting? Consciousness seems to have almost this self-healing mechanism at times. And these medicines seem to generate it sometimes in the right setting. Uh, and isn't that something, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to be involved in this research is, 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 just, is a, a great gift.
1: So a couple of of points I'd love to pull out here, one being, and I know I mentioned this before, but I think it's important, is that the effects of these molecules, even a one-time dose, have been shown to endure in some cases for years after. And I think that that is really important because there's still, uh, I think, a misconception that psychedelics are the, the drug experience, that they are a chemical experience in the brain. And first, that that might not have any positive benefit. I think you've clearly shown that's not the case, but secondly, that they only last as long as that molecule remains in the brain. Um, And I think a difference here between kind of conventional antidepressants, which are predicated on the idea of just raising or lowering a certain neurotransmitter for a certain period of time. And when people stop them, those effects tend to to go away. Um, So I I think that's really important. The other piece here I just bring up is there's a, a concept called hormesis, which I don't know how well it translates over into your work, Dr. Bosses, but uh, probably listeners of this podcast will recognize hormesis as a term talking about a positive stressor, a short-term stressor that actually makes the body stronger. And it's often described in the context of things like exercise, which is actually a stress on the muscles that breaks them down, but it it builds them back stronger. And from what I've seen so far, uh, it does look like if you are to measure levels of stress hormones in the body, when a person is having a psychedelic experience uh, that they do go up relative to baseline. So I think it just, it it is really key to understand. Number one, not all psychedelic trips, I guess, are are this massively positive experience that there is a lot of stress involved with Mm -hmm. it. And that that stress is reflected both in the psychology, as well as in the, the biology of how that, that works. Um, so I just wanted to reinforce the point that you made about uh the kind of need to to do preparatory work to ensure that that these things actually go in the right type of direction, because they do seem to be a, a pretty tremendous stress on uh the psyche if they are well, perhaps always, but if especially if they they go in the wrong direction. And
2: yeah, that can't but, be the worst. Go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: Which is I, I think that one thing I would just like us to address is um I see a lot of conversation about just saying psychedelics are always good, always positive, and therefore there should be no limitations on how they're used. And I I guess part of what I take from conversations with you and other people who are doing the actual research is there is a huge difference between just assuming that the ingestion of this molecule will solve all of our problems and the the planning intervention that includes uh, uh, really the integration on the front and back end of the experience to plug it into a person's a person's life as opposed to just a, the molecular experience of taking a, a, a drug and expecting it to
2: solve our problems. Certainly, and, and that can't be overstated. And um, the context matters, the set matters, the setting matters. This is not for everyone. It's not going to heal. <laughs> you know, the, we read in the press now so many uh, promising uh, hopes of all this. and. Hopefully we, it is a relief, uh, a tool to relieve suffering, but um, we're still in early research um, and context matters. Uh, we certainly can point to many experiences that are not so uh, you know, uh, wonderful in the ways we're talking about. So that matters a lot. And it's not about the drug experience. Again, I don't think these are drug studies per se. I, I think they're experience studies. Um, and this medicine for reasons we can't figure out <laughs> do trigger, when well, we know a bit of the neuroscience, but it triggers this altered state that's remarkable, but that seems to be part of the human experience. And when it's happened, um, when it occurs, it could provide insight um, into who we are, and in this case, how we die. But it's also being shown to relieve depression, anxiety, helping with smoking cessation, and there's a new trial about to come out with alcoholism. Um, but yeah, it's a paradigm shift in how it's taken and set and setting matters and, you know, I think there's a tendency in the in the press or the sensationalistic part of this to just um, chalk it up to, it's, it's all, you know, peaches and cream. And uh, these are very, can be very difficult emotions, very difficult experiences. The encounter with self, <laughs> you know, as Jung would tell you, <laughs> is not, not always an easy one.
1: Yeah. Very important context. Um, I think always important to kind of couch whatever is said about psychedelics and the idea that these aren't the panacea that some people are are pointing them out to be. I mean, I guess that's my opinion. I don't mean to impose that on you. Um, but obviously we're seeing uh, a lot of, a lot of news outlets reporting on these as the, the solution to what ails society. Um, I guess to that end, I I would love to talk about your thoughts on, on where psychedelics fit fit into the larger kind of conversation around ways to, to connect to that more meaningful state of things. Um, There's been conversation about meditation being one of these types of opportunities, uh, not for everyone, I guess, but I feel like for most people that is uh, obviously more readily available as well as perhaps uh, lower concern for things going south, Um, I was in an interesting conversation one day with a group of people describing the potential negative outcomes of uh, 10-day silent retreats, and that Mm -hmm. some people do have uh, breakdowns from that, and there did seem to be the overlap with uh, kind of meeting yourself, and that can be a a relatively challenging experience, so I'd I'd love to hear your take on that if you have one.
2: Yeah, well, that's certainly true. We know from, you know, in Zen, they call them sessions, these longer you know, ten day or longer retreats, and uh, plenty of stories of people not doing so well um, in, the, in the depth of those incredible um, experiences. Um, and then similar to this, I mean, people do have very difficult times during these uh seven generated experiences. Um, but in terms of the larger question, it's interesting. You know, we began talking about the pandemic, and it's such an incredible zeitgeist we found ourselves in. But hopefully it's also an inflection point for some for some change in the direction of things and you know you mentioned meditation and you know could uh, a different kind of a greater awareness of spirituality be cultivated during these interesting times uh, there's certainly talk about that um you know re- religion is going down in, in many polls in terms of attendance but the experience about religious experience is going up more. You know, in Pew studies, more people speak about having transcendent experiences. More people are seeking ways of, of finding meaning. So, and that was the container that religion would fill. So, <clears throat> hopefully, that could be you know revisited uh, in terms of its earliest um, intentions. But yeah, it's it's an incredible time, and we'll see. It's interesting. Psychedelics are back now in this way, um, and. What the next couple of years uh, will have us see is unknown. You know, I, no one really has an answer for this. How this is going to unfold? We do hope these medicines are available within five years or so for treating things like PTSD, which MDMA treats um, mm-hmm. a different a different molecule. Uh, end of life distress, alcoholism, addiction smoking cessation, depression, eating disorders. So there's that aspect of it. And then people ask, well, how can these meaning-making experiences be used in other ways um, to cultivate spirituality, to cultivate meaning-making among ourselves? And big questions, you know, I have no answer for how this is going to unfold, but it's certainly, it's it's really interesting to be part of that conversation. I I
1: feel like you have a a very unique Sense of these things, given your work and and beyond, I guess the psychedelic work, just your interaction with palliative care uh, on the whole. Um, and as we're, as we're closing things out here, um, one of, one of the things that I see come up a lot is this idea that a person's opinions at the end of life are more valuable than their opinions at other times. It's well, at the end of the day, what people really care about when they're laying there in their deathbed, that that supersedes their opinions of the last uh, however many decades. But I feel like not only do you have insight into that, but you have insight into how you can change that for the better. Um, And so I guess just in closing, any thoughts as to insights you you would have gleaned from interacting with these people at these points and what you could bring back to the rest of us who are trying to better understand these things that elude us up until the very end?
2: Yeah, what a great question, and of course that's one for all of us to hopefully meditate upon. You know, I, I I bear witness to these experiences people have on the psilocybin, which of course dovetails well with how people talk at the end of life as well. And it's no surprise, right? I mean, you know, you know what the, you know what they're saying at the end of life, and you know what, what you see the, the uh, what people in these trials are saying that in the end it was about relationships, it was about love, it was those are the values that mattered. Um, what's the old, uh, there's no pockets and coffins, you know, (laughs) the the things that drive us, you know, uh, humans so so often and so frequently throughout the arc of life cease to be so important at the end. Um, And, you know, we hear that, you hear it firsthand with people who are dying um, and you hear it often in these psilocybin trials, people really come out changed uh, and recalibrates kind of the hierarchy of what's important. Uh, you know, Victor Frankl, the great, you know, he was a Holocaust survivor and wrote Man's Search for Meaning, and he developed a meaning-making psychotherapy as well. He often speaks about that, uh, how meaning matters. And meaning matters now, by the way, in, in research outside of our trials, we're showing people in these studies come out with a, um, a more enhanced sense of, of personal meaning. But we know through other research now that meaning seems to be a buffer against end of life and throughout the lifespan, distress and depression, anxiety, it, it seems, you know, as Yalom would say, we're, we're wired for meaning. I think we're wired for meaning-making. Uh, that seems to be the design of who we are. Uh, and it's hard to do in a, in a, in a, in a culture where sometimes meaning is, is um, uh, not on our front burner. I mean, we live now in this, as you said earlier, I mean, what a distractible world this is. And there was a recent book just came out, I was watching an author speak about this, like, we're so distracted. Like, the brain, our brains are broken. Our capacity to even, you know, get through a book now is, uh, it seems difficult. Um, and that's really unfortunate. And, um, so in the end, we, we hear about the things that we know that matter. Um, and, uh, these experiences do seem to, um, reinforce that in, in these patients. And I, and that's what I had hats so off and just, such respect for the people in our trials. I mean, people come in these trials often without knowing what might happen. We prepare them and we educate them as to how this might work and how to go into the experience and go into the unfolding changes and you'll be safe and trust the unfolding changes, trust us and there's a whole you know, medical prep- preparatory thing we do. Um, but they are their courage to do this and they're really the pioneers. So hopefully in 10, 20, 30, 50 years of these medicines are being utilized in a way to really <clears throat> being used in a way to alleviate the suffering these early patients will have been pioneers in in creating some of the uh the first uh you know the first evidence so um yeah
1: yeah i i love it i think you know to to try to close things out here a little bit if we're thinking about the primary endpoint as far as what matters and this is a podcast geared towards both medical practitioners and to members of the public, uh, I think hopefully we can agree, this is a shared endpoint that we all care about, which is to make meaning, to have more meaning in life. Uh, And I guess double meaning here, the primary endpoint or the endpoint we all face at some point is death. And to be able to actually enjoy life before that and to have integration at the end seems so important. And so Dr. Brossitz, I just wanna thank you so much for your time and for this really illuminating conversation Um, I would love to get a chance to catch up with you maybe in a couple of years when things have gone a little bit further. We didn't get a chance to talk about it, but there are things happening in Oregon with decriminalization and implementation of psilocybin use. Uh, And so there are a lot of things happening right now, hopefully, which will move things towards uh, more equitable access to these medications for the people who need them. But again, just so grateful for your time and for your wisdom. uh, And I know our audience will appreciate it as well.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for that wonderful closing and I hope to see you before a few years for sure. Um, and um, thank you very much. And this finally, I think, you know, yes, making meaning and what these medicines seem to do now is also ask us what is consciousness? What is all this? You know, it's easy to think that the brain generates this remarkable thing we have, but we're questioning, what is that? It's called a heart problem, right? What is consciousness? So, so fascinating. Thank you so much. and. Um, uh, just just a treat uh, speaking with you, Austin.
1: Fantastic. Thanks again.
0: As always, thank you for listening to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where our sponsors help bring the very best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. Not everyone can be a sponsor on my platform, and I so appreciate the good work the relentless research and the generous support from my friends at Biotics, TA Sciences and Integrative Therapeutics. These are brands I know and trust in my own clinic and can confidently recommend them to you. Visit them at BioticsResearch.com, TASciences.com and IntegrativePro.com and please tell them you learned about them on New Frontiers. If it's not too much to ask, I would appreciate a thumbs up and a kind review wherever you're listening to New Frontiers. Thanks.